The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Michael Gannon sits down with cryptographer and NPS faculty member Dr. Britta Hale. Today we have Dr. Britta Hale with us from the Computer Science Department at Naval Post Graduate School. Um, you've written a lot, you've published a lot, um, you've been really busy over the past four years since coming here, or since getting your PhD. Could you explain a little bit about uh, yourself and, and how, you know, highlight reel, so to speak, on how you got here to NPS and writing about innovation in a Naval journal? Sure, absolutely. And I'm happy to be here. My background, if we go far enough back, is in pure mathematics, and I am a cryptographer. When I was transitioning from pure math into cryptography, I discovered that there were no programs at that time in the U.S. in uh, cryptographic uh, techniques. And so I went to the Royal Holloway University of London, which was an excellent school sp specializing, among other things, in that topic and also worked thereafter and continued to the Norwegian University of Science and Technology where I continued to work in cryptography and then in industry thereafter. And through various uh, twists in the story, I ended up here. And that is actually where this essay came out of. So it is not related to crypto. If anyone has read the essay, they'll have discovered that it's related to tanks and more particularly to innovation. So it's within the story of tank development that that's framed. And that essay was actually born out of my interactions with students here. In many ways, it's a very personal letter to the students. It's a personal letter to the students. I, I personally like that you use the tank um, as an analogy and talking about how it was a farmer's tractor because of the soil conditions uh, just north of here. Um, in California, and, and tires weren't able to go through the soft soil, um, so they had to come up with a solution. And then somebody saw that, and then somebody saw that, and then through conversations and through uh, random interactions um, and lack of barrier, so to speak, people were able to adopt ideas and then implement them. Um, how, but how is that a story to a story or analogy? How is this a letter to students. I'm, I'm intrigued on that. <laughs> I understand it, but I'm intrigued. Now, every organization has strengths and it has areas to improve, right? And you can always look at areas to improve and say, well, this is what you should do, uh, but if no one's interested, then uh, why bother? When I wrote this, it was very much focused on those students that I saw were aiming to innovate, who are working very hard and succeeding in many areas. But there are certain select gaps. And that's where it was a personal letter to. Uh, it's basically bridging through these gaps. And as far as the story of the tank goes, I, I've driven tanks. I'm mildly interested in the history thereof. And looking at how to align this to illustrate uh, th these innovation ideas, uh, that came to mind. And I even was learning more things myself as I delved into the history, for example, that they came out of farming here in, up north in the San Joaquin Valley. And it was incredibly interesting to me to write this essay. I will say, though, there were a lot of barriers for these people for innovation. 
uh, just incredible barriers. And we have Holt, who is an original farmer who is designing uh, these machines. And he actually offered the U.S. government to ship this free of charge. It's free. He's offering it to ship it free of charge to any testing ground of their choice uh, so that he could show them its capabilities. And it declined. And it's definitely not a money problem. That was an interest problem. Or a communication problem, we could say. And that was in uh, 1913. And he again made the same offer a few years later. And got the same response. Now, actually, in parallel to this, and there's some aspects of the story that didn't make it into the essay simply by word limit, uh, there was a Holt dealer, someone who's actually dealing in the, the same sort of tractors for farming, who was a land owner in Hungary. And he saw the capabilities and the potential as an armored, essentially what we know now as a tank. And he promoted this to the Austro-Hungarian government and said, let me do a demo for you. And I said, okay, fine. So they said yes, and uh, he demoed it. They were thrilled, they saw the potential, and they said, let's put these in production immediately in Austria. Now that was in 1912, so a year before uh, Holt made the offer to the US government. And so you can see already that there's these parallel trends happening. It might be a natural question of what broke down because in the Battle of Somme, you know, it, it, it wasn't <laughs> the other side using the tanks. And it actually was the German government and basically competition between Austro-Hungarian or the Hungarian side and the German side and what you could say petty infighting. And they didn't want it to go forward. So it's really a matter of pride on the one side and a lack of seizing the opportunity on the other. That's a really good segue to my next question. So what are the the parallels and, and barriers, because it sounds like it's personal, it's mm -hmm. people, it's cultural, it's it's sort of inculcated into ourselves, into our institutions, into into even the systems that we exist in, mm -hmm. uh, acquisitions in particular, uh, programs of management. These are year-long acquisitions processes. We have a trillion-dollar military-industrial mm -hmm. complex that obviously in my opinion, doesn't really want disruptive innovation such as that we would see in the normal computer science industry because that's a threat to them. Mm -hmm. While it may be good for America, may be good for the troops, it may be good for the war fighting effort or capabilities uh, um, that we're putting forward for the forces, so to speak, it's not good for those congressional districts. It's not good for mm -hmm. those congressmen. It's not good for the existing vested interest. Mm -hmm. so it, it sounds the parallels are exactly the same. Um, that they're, they're, they're cultural, they're personal, they're, mm -hmm. they're systems, they're sometimes statutory laws, um, existing interest, existing uh, monetary systems, uh, so to speak. How do we... I don't even know if you have a, a, an answer to this. I don't even know if I have, I have an answer or, or a right way to frame this question, but how do, how do we address that? How do we inculcate innovation mm -hmm. into a system that's arguably designed not to innovate? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, and it's challenging because behind all of these organizations, it's fundamentally people. And we have, as you said, and I think you hit it on the head when you said culture. Uh, 
by a natural norm, there, there's all these microcultures around us, and your family is one microculture. Uh, Marine Corps is another microculture. And whenever there's change, uh, especially change that's put forward by other uh, cultures or microcultures, it can threaten your way of doing life. If that, if that means finances and a change in the financial system construct or how we do computer science, whatever it may be, uh, that can threaten your way of life. And the natural reaction to that is to bunker down and uh, defend your little microculture. And so we have these, uh, you can call them bubbles, cultural bubbles around us. And those will always be there to a certain extent. This is a very a solid premise of how society in the world works. For example, you have the Marine Corps. There is a culture to the Marine Corps. Uh, it is not necessarily in the best interest of the DOD to break down that culture. That it has a power to it. But to innovate, you also have to be able to accept change into that, including small things that threaten the current way of doing uh, systems. And that means reaching outside of this bubble. Now, that is a very daunting action. It takes courage, it takes time, it's weird, it's uncomfortable, people don't like doing it. Now, you're really good at doing other uncomfortable things. You know, if I said, let's go on a Marine Corps hike, <laughs> you know it's coming. But when it comes to innovation and saying, let's go have a conversation about this new change that might uh, affect your way of doing things right now, that's going to be uncomfortable and there's going to be resistance. I actually often uh, talk to students about uh, getting out and talking to other people about their ideas and also hearing inputs. And I say, well, here at NPS, you are surrounded by an enormous number of experts in various fields, fields outside of your own. Uh, you can take your ideas and go talk to them. You can invite them to talk over lunch and just explore the realm of possibilities, broaden your own mind. And that is daunting. The number one response I get is, what if I don't know enough to talk to those people? Or how do I prepare to do that? And now we all want to be prepared for a conversation with an expert, but to a certain point we just need to get out and go do things. This actually is something that struck me early at my time in NPS. So when I first arrived here, I used to have lunch over at El Prado uh, dining hall, and sometimes I go in and recognize people I knew and sit down and have lunch uh, with the group. And mind you, that is a microculture. These are people I know. And sometimes I walk in and didn't recognize anyone, so I grab a free table and maybe pull up a research paper and read that. And as I watched, a lot of people were doing this exact same thing. They'd wave, recognize a group that they knew, sit down and have lunch with them, or they'd go take a free table. And one time during lunch, it just struck me and I sat back and thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why am I doing this? I was sitting there alone at a table reading a research paper that I could have been reading in my office, and I'm around all these people of different backgrounds. Why am I sitting here alone? So I made a decision. And the next time I went to lunch in the El Prado dining hall, I chose a random table with the group at it that I didn't know anyone at, and I went over and said, can I join you here for lunch? And you definitely get a surprise reaction, but of course they say yes, and 
uh, it ended up being a group of professors from a different department. We had this excellent conversation. I learned about their research. Uh, it, it was fantastic. I thought, this is great. I'm going to do it again. And so I kept doing this. And I ended up talking to various faculty. I talked to students. I talked to our finance department. I've talked to our maintenance department. People from all across campus and different backgrounds. And it's been very enlightening, uh, to say the least. And I'll give you a hint, because this is weird. It's very weird to walk up to a group and say, Hey, I don't know any of you. I'm going to crash your table for lunch. Uh, it's actually more weird for them to say no, disinvite you. And that's the thing. Is you, as you go out and you're talking to professors, as you go to, over to industry, we're right next to Silicon Valley here, uh, and reach out to places around the world and talk to people, it's going to be weird. It's probably going to be more weird for them to say, no, I don't want to talk to you. So as you bring change to your own group, it, it means being open to that lack of comfort. That's huge. Um, yeah, it's the lunchroom test. Why do all the kids sit together at lunch? Exactly. Uh, uh, economist uh, Thomas Sowell from Cornell uh, wrote about that. Uh, he was a Marine in the 1950s. Um, he's now, I think he's still publishing, but he's, he's uh, going on like 90 years old, but he's, <laughs> he's spoken about the lunchroom test. Uh, mm -hmm. Before you can see how integrated or, or diverse the microcultures within a a school community are, based off of how kids sit together at lunch, because they're going to sit with people that are either in shared classes, shared interests, or have other shared commonalities uh, between them. So, so in introducing institutional and and, and change, innovation, mm -hmm. and, and breaking down those microcosms of culture throughout a, a, a campus university, mm -hmm. I might just spitball an idea. So computer science has a computer science building. Mm -hmm. Engineering has an engineering building. Graduate School of Defense Management has a building. What if we just, every year, plop all the professors up from their nice, pretty offices mm -hmm. and make them move to a different building so they're forced to interact with people outside of their vested field. Mm -hmm. This doesn't change their ability to come together for staffing meetings, planning meetings, and everything that's required within a field. But we don't actually need, unless there's a, it's a makerspace or the RoboDojo or, or you know, um, one of the labs that has physical devices or, or requirements that are required for education, classes, a classroom's a classroom. Mm -hmm. we, we, so couldn't we create a microcosm of, of innovation and culture and break down the, those micro-cultures within at least the NPS academia uh, between faculty, students, and different departments by just rearranging offices um, simply between buildings? I'm asking you to effectively pack up yourself and move <laughs> your building because you would have to be the first to, to, to go move. To go move as as the professor that that gave the lunchroom example, <laughs> you know. I, I love the way you think, and there's absolutely various ways of tackling this problem. It, it comes from different directions. You can move physically. You can you cha change your lunch table. It really is an individual responsibility, uh, and I think that's what you're pointing to here. It would be my responsibility to go pack up my office and work with a different inside of a different department for a while. 
and there's actually various forms of this that academia uses, for example, sabbaticals. That's the point, is you go to a different university entirely and work with people from a, a different microculture and learn from them and bring it back. So this construct that you're pointing to, which is uh, changing up that microculture a little bit, has a lot of value. Uh, it comes down to, again, that individual choice. I think that's what I was pointing to a little bit with this essay is we're, we're targeting the innovator here. Now, there are people who don't want to break their comfort zone and are very content with where they're at uh, and how things are going and does okay. There will always be groups of people that really don't want a change. But then we're not going to change society or the world or technology if we keep doing things the way they are. And then it is a matter of targeting those individuals that say, yes, this is what I want. Uh, those are the ones who are going to be impacted by these statements. Those are the ones who will take these ideas and run with them. Excellent. Um, so we've talked about innovation as it pertains to culture and as it pertains to academia. You've given your example of lunchrooms. I've given my my idea free for NPS. Free, <laughs> mind you. It, it costs us nothing to tell people to move rooms. We can force change. Right? We do own the buildings. Just pointing out obvious realities. <laughs> um, probably not making friends right now, I understand. But um, within the DoD, mm -hmm. now, okay, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a a single accession pipeline. We grow our own. We don't have lateral movements. How do we introduce innovation? Are we talking about taking potentially for cultural innovation, uh, uh, community innovation, uh, business operations innovation? Are we talking about taking maybe a, a 06 colonel for a year um, who's post-command um, and potentially sending him to do a sabbatical at Nike in the boardroom to to maybe just see how a business does business differently, completely unrelated to the military-industrial complex. Not, you know, Harris, not a radio manufacturer, not Microsoft trying to, to get business, but Nikes, and they're not going to start selling us boots, so there is no conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are, are we talking about introducing that, like sending service members out into to do sort of sabbaticals? Is that something? I, I know the services, that would be something they'd have to tackle. Mm -hmm. And there's probably legal requirements and, and other things within the, uh, the bureaucracy that, that would have to be done. Because we already have some sort of fellowships or sabbaticals, so to speak. We have the, mm -hmm. the congressional fellowship, but that's, you know, within the, the military, industrial, political process. We have sending, you know, myself and the students here at NPS were sent away from our operational units to get educated here um, and then come back and, and, and do things. Um, how do we inculcate that, like, and, and inject that, so to speak, into a, a military industrial system that is layers upon layers of bureaucratic interests that sometimes exist only to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. It comes down to, and I think that's a great, another great idea that you've proposed right there. 
I think a lot of students would actually be very interested in that. I've talked to some who've tried it themselves before in, in short versions while at MPS. And basically getting out of your comfort zone and going and talking with other people. And that, that becomes that key part, again, conversation. It's not simply going and observing, as you said, if we were in Nike. It's not simply watching their operations. Uh, it is speaking with these people and building that relationship where information can uh, change hands, where you are supporting them with ideas, they're supporting you with ideas, uh, and being able to refine things. If we talk about uh, even innovation as a word, where does it come from? Uh, it comes from the Latin word innovare, which means to bring newness to something. Uh, to, you could translate it as to renew or even to alter. So it's not simply like some new idea that's brand new. It's readapting things. And that might also mean you have an idea. And as it currently is, maybe the DOD can't capitalize on that. But with some alteration, it could. And to know how to alter it to the best possible way so that the operator can use it, so that industry can see the need, uh, that's input from all angles. And so absolutely, this means going out and having conversations with industry. It also means asking questions. So it's not simply setting aside weeks or months uh, to be embedded uh, with different industry or academia. It's also simply picking up the phone. And there's that daunting task again, picking up the phone to someone that you haven't talked with. And someone who doesn't share the same background, who isn't already in your microculture. You look up on them online and say, okay, they're not, they're not ex-Marine. So can I pick up the phone and have a conversation with them? And as far as the institution goes, that means also rewarding people who do that. Uh, that there needs to be an incentive for people to get out of their comfort zone and go do that. And I would challenge you, if you've had an idea recently, just think about it for a moment. How many people outside the Marine Corps, and then we'll broaden that, outside the DOD, have you talked to about that idea? Um, me particularly? Yeah. Or to follow up to the big idea conversation, I actually was running late to this because I, I couldn't get in the building because I was on the phone talking to somebody about that. Like, Fantastic. I, that I, was great to hear. I, I, I called the director of the advanced DOD's Advanced Distributed Learning Initiative. Like, if I, I bought a LinkedIn premier account, whatever, so I can just cold call anybody I feel like now. And you're mm -hmm. right. Nobody has ever said no. I mm -hmm. say, I'm Captain Gannon. I'm NPS. I've got this idea. This is what I've done. I try to synthesize it as, as quickly as I can to respect mm -hmm. their time. Because let's be honest, like some of these people, like if one of them's working at the uh, Office of Personnel Management mm -hmm. and wrote the, is writing the executive order on how we're going to modernize the executive department, it's like, hey, they're probably pretty busy. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not living in Monterey, and they're not, you know... Uh, they're busy. Yeah. For this, I mean, for the listeners here on the podcast, what was the response to this? When you picked up the phone and cold called them with your idea, what was their response? That's interesting. Let's talk about that. Let's, And then it turns into the, well, this is what we're doing, mm -hmm. and then this is what so and says. And you know what? Let me provide, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to this person at this place. And then, because they're really interested in that. I've, mm -hmm. I've actually talked to, to industry uh, leaders, uh, um, 
breed uh, labs. They, they specialize in some cool stuff with uh, uh, artificial intelligence and, and smart tutoring, digital tutoring, mm-hmm. um, and everything within the educational, uh, you know, computer-aided instruction learning environment. Um, yeah, it, it's networking. It's connecting you to people who have same interests, who have the same cross paths, who, who share common goals, and they're looking for somebody to to go on that adventure with them because you're 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 going into the darkness, you're going into the unknown, and you're mm-hmm. trying to create something new or adapt something that already exists. Yeah, you're trying to take you know. And um, by doing that cold call, you're actually breaking up the permutation a little bit to get someone from a different background and. We all have we have more in common than we have differences. That's the that's the funny thing. So eventually you'll find those commonalities, and then just like you said here, you'll find what's in common. People who are ready to go on that same journey, and you can push things forward. Yeah, and and most people are pretty receptive. Mm-hmm. You you may get a weird email like, "Hey, I don't have time now. Let's talk in two weeks." And you're you know you have to. Some people are that busy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, you may be on a 10-week quarter, 11-week quarter deadline and construct of the university environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're, you may not fall into their timeline. I think that's the only um, real struggle mm-hmm. is, is the, the time aspect. But, yeah. yeah, no, I haven't actually bumped into anybody who, who has said um, outright no. Mm-hmm. I've had people defer, deflect, or refer me to somebody else. Um, but yeah, it's it's actually been really receptive. Yes, frustrating. Yes, the annoying that it takes 50 phone calls to find the right person because there's not a directory of who's doing what in the world. Mm-hmm. It takes effort. It, it takes work to make those connections. But it is incredibly, it is so worth it. And if you look at defense spending uh, budget and everything that goes towards trying to innovate. Making cold calls and talking with people and having conversations, that's not draining the budget. (laughs) That's not where our pain points are. So we could actually be doing more of that. And again, these are the people who, and we're targeting in this conversation, those who are innovators. People who are listening are those who are innovators who want to do this. And again, it's just going out and having those conversations. I would encourage it to be with people who have a different background because you can very easily fall into that cycle. Uh, it's just an echo chamber of similar backgrounds. Like I could, um, you talk to other people in crypto and we all think something's a great idea and we wonder why it doesn't get adopted. Or you might have the Marine Corps, I've heard it where there's a great idea, all Marines are on board, and the Navy on that side says, no, we don't want to do that. So we have to be careful of the echo chamber because as these ideas mature, they're only being adapted according to what that microculture thinks it wants versus actually meeting a need that will help everyone. Okay. Um, so one, one last thing on, on innovation. Mm-hmm. So how do we attract the innovators throughout the DoD Mm-hmm. that are already, they're part of the Commandant's Innovation Challenge, they're publishing stuff independently, they've got maker spaces, they're, they're writing in the Marine Corps Gazette proceedings, you know, across any of the ranks mm-hmm. uh, um, and any of the services. Um, how do we attract those innovators to 
MPS and, mm-hmm. and pull them out so we can give them the space, the resources, the community, the support structure, and the microcosm culture of, well, I need to know, I need to learn this in computer science, I need to know this out of plans and policy, I need to know this in, in you know, personnel management because people have to use these stuff that I'm introducing to innovate and, and pull all these things together so we can, you know, um, grow mm-hmm. innovators, so to speak. How, how do we, how do we, how do we find them in the DoD? Mm-hmm. We know they exist. We, we, you know, they pop up in articles and everything. How do, how do we pull them here to NPS and then grow this community of innovators? Uh, this is very much an interesting question. And I would counter with saying that uh, NPS is aiming to serve the innovators. Uh, we're not aiming to capture them. <laughs> so definitely, we have great resources here. We have some fantastic programs. We have uh, innovation leadership. We have a new course on emerging, advocating emerging technologies and how to convince people or even explain to people how something that's very technical can impact them. We have courses on uh, strategy with emerging tech and we have courses on uh, innovation and militaries. There's all sorts of background that MPS offers and as well as specialist training in various topics that can be a huge resource for these people. But there's no one place where a person has to innovate and the you, as you may continue past NPS, that's not an end of your innovation cycle. You will continue as innovators wherever you are. And that is really a skill and ability. And we do offer courses for those who are located elsewhere, for example, warfare centers. But wherever you are, you can be working on innovation. Sometimes there is a view of where innovation might happen. Like, for example, it happens at NPS or in academia. Uh, Some people believe innovation happens in industry, and you'd be surprised at the number of people from both academia and industry that thinks it happens in uh, DOD. Basically, we all suffer from a case of the grass is greener on the other side. And in reality, all of these are working or should be working very closely together. Some have that down to a fine art. It's not you versus me, it is us working together. And that is really the attitude that we need to grow, or those who are working on innovation should be growing in their own units. I had a case uh, once where I was had published a new protocol, new cryptographic protocol. It was the first time that type of uh, protocol had ever been done. It gathered some attention. And there was a big uh, industry company, I won't name it for the sake of the podcast, uh, but you recognize and you're using it several times a day. And they noticed this and they immediately went and trialed it for their systems. It would have been used everywhere, uh, basically for internet. And I found out about this afterwards because they were listening to what academia was putting out. And academia is listening to industry and seeing where those needs are. A lot of people are very closely tied together and working together. Where does change or new technological developments happen? It's never any one place. And that's also part of the story with the tank. It's never one place. These ideas grew 
from multiple people over a large number of years, actually, long before I started this story. How do we drive um, basically tractors across soft marshland? And these ideas grow over time. There's people inputting from all directions. It's just a matter of listening and being able to uh, respond to those. Being willing to trial small things. You have a free trial, take advantage of it. We don't need a program of record to you know, see how it might work. Or test one thing. It's a small test. See how it works. And that was the same case with this industry company and a brand new protocol. Uh, they wanted to see how it would work and if it could be rolled out. That's how responsive development of new technology happens. As you see an idea, you act on it. And you worry about the funding thereafter. That is also theme in the story. I mean, these people were working with very limited funding. They were working with scrap metal. The industry partner, their financial, if you look through their financial history, that wasn't at a great status. And everyone was aiming for a common goal and willing to work together from different backgrounds. So that willpower, that's, again, that's an individual. That's the innovator, and that's who, who we're targeting. That mentality, people who are willing to see that through and listen uh, and accept adaptations, those are the people who are really going to lead innovation. Dr. Hill, if I may, you, you mentioned the word responsiveness. Um, and, I, and I believe certain parts of this aspect is a, is a two-pronged approach. Right? How do we become more responsive in our, in our community and in the Department of Defense? Right? So we have the innovators. Right? We have the collaboration efforts. Mm -hmm. We have networking. Mm -hmm. Let's say in the um, lunchroom scenario, we've broken down all the barriers. Everybody's communicating. It's the ideal, uh, the ideal state, if you will. Mm -hmm. Communication, collaboration, networking, ideas are being sh um, shared back and forth. But how do we improve on the other side the responsiveness and the reception on those that give the ultimate decision? The leadership. How do we get that buy-in? Right? Because as you mentioned earlier, even with the tank, we've had a proven history. It's worked. It's been improved upon, and we've constantly, if you read the article, and as you mentioned it, how many times was that presented? How many times was that given before it was shunned and shunned? Until finally, it came to fruition, and, and the lights and the heads turned on, and people said, you know what, this is a great idea. Perhaps we should look upon or look, at, look into this further. How do we improve that? How do we get leadership and those, not only in the DOD, but in government or in your respective industry, how do we get people to be more receptive to those ideas? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a very, very interesting question. So, with leadership, let's get down to what that leadership is. Right. It's people. And once again, there are those people who are willing to innovate, to try out ideas, to talk with others, and to give their own perspectives on things to refine, to listen. Now, if we didn't see a trial of a tank, if, that, if Holt's offer there wasn't accepted, just demo a free trial, that's because someone wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. But then there's those who are, and they said, okay, let's actually see this sort of thing. If you look at uh, Churchill, in this, inside this essay I touch on how Churchill, he got pitched a story of a, a giant bicycle, basically, with 40-foot uh, wheels to roll across trenches, and it had turrets on the top. Now he listened, and that's a pretty crazy idea, but he tells the guy, okay, I'm going to put you in charge of this new landship committee, and you're going to figure out some interesting way forward. Now, they didn't do giant bicycles. They did a tank in the end. But he listened to where there was that focus, that drive, and 
the fundamental idea and he put it to action. So there's the two sides. Now let me address that first side a little bit more, the one that's a bit entrenched and didn't want to go to the field and see this free trial. Ultimately, some people uh, aren't ready for a change. That they are focused and they have to focus perhaps on uh, the things right in front of them. That's where those microcultures come back in. Because you're already part of that microculture. And there, there's even smaller ones. There's a leadership microculture in some office, uh, for example, in the Marine Corps. And you can reach those inside of your own microculture. Those who might be less willing to change. You are uniquely positioned to reach them. That's perfect. I actually can't think of anything else to, to say, except I'm slightly encouraged. Um, but no, it's, this has been a, you know, a daunting process as I look at my fellow students who already have their research proposals into Python, which is our like thesis management system for everybody who's not an NPS student listening. And, um, and, and they're already starting, like, they're writing their IRBs and they're going to start collecting data and everything. And I'm like, I, I don't even have a research proposal because I'm still just calling people mm -hmm. and talking about an idea. And I've got a 3D printed thing and a screen and it does some stuff and it turns on. Um, that, that's about where I'm at. Is mm -hmm. It does some stuff and turns on. Um, but it's encouraging to hear that like, this is where I'm supposed to be. I mm -hmm. should just keep growing the idea, keep calling, keep finding, because somebody's going to come alongside and, and carry it, or it's going to churn into, it's going to grow, adapt, and innovate itself into something that's worthwhile for the, for the DoD, the Marine Corps, uh, and, and hopefully a thesis eventually. Oh, absolutely. If you keep on that track, you'll have a great thesis. Hopefully. This is encouraging. Now, um, thank you. I, I can't think of anything uh, left to cover. If you have any saved rounds that you want to uh, send out to the abyss, feel free. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, this has been a great discussion. I would just encourage everyone who's listening to the podcast uh, to take advantage of every opportunity, and more particularly to those that aren't within your own sphere, and, and look for the small differences. That different lunch table, for example, or that different office and share your ideas. Many people are actually very willing to listen. You never know what impact you could have. Awesome. Thank you. We'll call it a day. That's awesome. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded July 30th, 2021. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.